0: Good evening. Wisdom Eccentrics by Natchang Rinpoche. Chapter 2, Part 2. At the outset of my training, being able to relax in the company of Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche was a fleeting experience. I suppose I must say that, apart from Dujum Rinpoche and Dilgo Khyentse Rinpoche, I'd never really experienced devotion for anyone before. There'd been people I'd respected in the past, sure, and some had certainly been. I'm going to start that again because I've put my microphone on. Good evening. Wisdom Eccentrics by Nakchang Rinpoche. At the outset of my training, being able to relax in the company of Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche was a fleeting experience. I suppose I must say that apart from Dujum Rinpoche and Dilgo Khyentse Rinpoche, I'd never really experienced devotion for anyone before. There'd been people I'd respected in the past, sure, and some had certainly been older and far wiser. The last person to be worthy of respect had been Derek Crow, the Head of Illustration at Bristol Art School. He was so entirely jovial and avuncular, however, that although he was an authority figure, his authority never impinged on our relationship in any obvious way. I just knew him to be a thoroughly good, worthy and honourable man. He was knowledgeable, cultured, humorous, witty, whimsical and eccentric, but open-minded and circumspect. His eccentricity never impinged on others and his humour was never at the expense of others. He was very much what I wanted to be when I became an art school lecturer, but that was not to be. This is a good point to set another matter straight, in case you're wondering. I wasn't searching for a father figure. To be honest, Derek Crowe did serve me in that role, but by the time I hauled out to India, I was pretty much my own man. I could handle most things thrown my way, and there was no question of parents bailing me out. I had some self-respect in terms of being independent. That's probably an outrageous statement to make in the 21st century, where people are often not entirely independent adults until their thirties. But in the middle of the twentieth century, it wasn't quite that unusual. I won't go into my personal history here, because it's well-documented elsewhere. Suffice it to say that I considered myself an adult at 14 years of age, because, amongst other things, I worked every weekend from that point till I went to art school. In the early 1860s, 14-year-old Confederate and Union drummer boys were walking into musket fire. In the late 1700s, ten to twelve-year-old powder monkeys were scuttling between decks as the ship they served was raked by French cannonade. And some eighteen-year-old women had already had three babies, with two having died in their infancy. That's a thought which might give some perspective to this question of maturity. Maturity is often merely what society suggests or demands. Anyhow, I was simply searching for the secrets of existence and Rinpoche was a major custodian of that knowledge. I'd learned enough about Vajrayana by the point I met him, to regard him as a Viking might regard Thor or Odin. When you begin having even the faintest idea that someone knows everything there is to know about reality, that person ceases to be ordinary in any sense. How did I know he knew that? Well, to be honest, I can't answer that. All I can say is that it seemed obvious to me at the time. I felt it in my blood, bone, muscle, cartilage, and nasal septum. There was also some logic that went along with it because I'd studied the Madhyamika psychology of perception that together with the sheer human presence of Lamas such as Kyabje Dujjum Rinpoche and Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche filled me with awe. You obviously have to get over awe to some degree. If you don't get over it, you'll never learn anything. But it's a state of mind that's probably necessary in the beginning. It happens of itself in any case because study and practice lift the veil that prevents a person seeing certain lamas for what they are. True, there are some Lamas who are simply members of the clergy and although worthy of high respect, they are not likely to nail your head to the wall with a mere glance. Much is said of devotion in Tibetan Buddhist circles. The general idea is that you're supposed to have it. If you don't have it, there's no way forward. Because of this, too many people try to have it, without it having them. What's that supposed to mean? It's not mysterious. It means there's no choice about devotion once you follow a certain line far enough to have direct experience when it happens, it's obvious. You can't manufacture it, and it cannot be demanded. If it's a direct response to what you see, based on your own knowledge and experience, there's no question. If you fabricate it, it falls apart. There were plenty of spiritual types who fabricated it. Some of them turned into something quite obnoxious. Some merely became jellified. Some made a competition out of it in terms of who had more than others. Some turned it into a cult. Some were encouraged to turn it into a cult. Not every person who looks like a llama is going to be what they're supposed to be. There are horror stories in every religion and Buddhism is no exception. There are certainly a few Lamas who are no better than cult gurus and it would be no service to Vajrayana if I pretended that were not the case. There was some cultic type from Kalamazoo called Eddie Kurtz a veritable sumo hamster who'd set himself up as an enlightened master. He had some entirely bizarre lama circus setup going where obedience to his whims was the main practice. The idea was that male Buddhists, male students worshipped him whilst the female students were summoned to his bed. This kind of situation should be no cause for surprise, however, because the estimated percentage for sociopaths in the general population is 8 per thousand. It was sad to see people playing the devotion game and vilifying those who'd not learned the rules. I generally kept away from Western people in India and Nepal, because I found we had little in common. I even pretended not to speak English at one point. I'd reply, Entschuldigung, aber ich kann kein Englisch sprechen. This generally worked, and they'd reply, Yeah, like cool man, see you around. One day, however, I ran into Johannes Frischnecht. Who replied to me in German. He soon lost me. My German is rudimentary. I admitted my ploy and jolly silly I felt. Johannes thought it was extremely funny. He had to sit down on the steps of the store that faced the churton because he was crying with laughter. We're still friends to this day. Johannes turned out to be a Tibetan translator and an expert on Vajrayana ritual symbolic accoutrements. He helped me a great deal in my studies with Yeshe Dorje Rinpoche, both as a translator and as a guide with respect to accessing materia tantrica. So, back to devotion. As far as I'm concerned, devotion isn't measured in terms of Empowerments or anything that can be added to your spiritual credit rating. Devotion is direct understanding and that never has any need of being displayed. In spiritual terms, this could sound too subtle, too abstruse to understand. But the same phenomenon exists in the world of the arts. Almost anyone can enjoy world-class music, but only a proficient musician can know the worth of a world-class musician. The greater your musical ability, the more astonishing a master musician becomes. Mozart is a composer of extremely pretty melodies until you learn enough about music to understand his compositions. J.S. Bach is a composer of marvellously intricate sonic adventures until you learn something about contrapuntal composition. Then you gasp. Jack Bruce said, Bach was my greatest bass teacher, so Bach isn't some dim and distant figure. Bach is alive and well and his compositions are as fresh as the present moment. I'd describe that statement as devotion, the gasp, born of the inseparable nature of developed musical knowledge and critically inspired appreciation. Now. I don't want to give the impression that my gasping at Rinpoche's spiritual genius is some mighty qualification. I certainly gasped, but there was much in what he did that made the gasping possible. He made it possible in the way a racing driver could introduce an experience that was out of your range. You'd get yourself strapped into the seat cocoon your head in the safety helmet and then the racing driver would make you gasp. You'd probably not be able to drive in excess of 200 miles an hour and handle bends on a racetrack at that speed, but you could sit there and gasp. Of course, I'd had preparation for this experience with Kabje Dujam Rimshe. Dujum Rimshe had certainly inspired me to gasp, but in a different way from Rimshe. With Kyabje Dujum Rimshe, it was like being on another planet. But with Rimshe, that planet was teeming with harrowing threats to my sanity. I was electrically on edge in circumstances that were utterly unpredictable. I never knew which way the tiger was going to pounce. I never knew which of my cherished concepts of reality he was going to devour. In spite of the terror, however, I came back day after day to a jungle in which I was tentatively willing prey. Sometimes we'd simply sit in silence together. Sometimes, in the silence, he would suddenly roar, Hey! Look! Now! What is the nature of mind? So, what was I doing putting my head into the tiger's jaws when Dujum Rinpoche and Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche had both been the epitome of gentleness? They'd both made me tingle with giddy exhilaration as my practice evolved, but they never terrified me. It would have been wonderful to have stayed with Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche, but he was the head of the Nyingma tradition. His responsibilities had grown since I'd first met him in 1971, and he no longer had the time he used to have at his disposal for wandering Westerners Dilgo Khyentse Rinpoche also had disciples in great numbers in India, Nepal and Bhutan. Both great Lamas were committed to giving teachings and empowerments throughout the Indian subcontinent and Taiwan. Because of this, Dujam Rinpoche advised me to seek Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche out as my main teacher. And so it was that he became my Tsarwai Lama. It was from him that I received almost everything I understand of Dzogchen Menakde, the series of implicit instruction. Now we come to another subject that needs to be understood in order to comprehend the wisdom lays that compose this book, the role of the Vajra master, Rinpoche was my Vajra master and that meant that I was committed to seeing everything exactly as he saw it. If we differed in view I was wrong. I was at his command for whatever it might be. I'd put myself and my sanity in his hands. Some people think this is an eastern mode of tutelage that has no place in the West or with Western people, but in that they are misguided. The Vajra master exists in Christianity and Judaism and probably in most other religious traditions. Rather than quote scripture however, I'll quote Bob Dylan. God said, Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. And Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe said, where do you want the killing done? God said, out on Highway 61. The reason I choose to quote Bob Dylan is because I live in that world as much as I live in the world of Vajrayana. Rinpoche didn't use any form of exalted speech with me and what he had to say was often loaded and ironic in the same way that the God of Bob Dylan's song said, "'You can do what you want, Abe.' I could have done what I wanted. I could have walked out at any point." Rinpoche was not keeping me there. Unlike the god of Bob Dylan's song there was no threat but next time you see me coming you better run. Because Rinpoche was no tyrant or sociopathic cult guru. I doubt whether Dudjom Rinpoche would have minded too much if I'd quit. It was well known that Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche was a wrathful lama. The problem was that I would have minded. Anyhow, I knew that Rinpoche was the real deal. I knew it with every goddamn fibre of my being. I was actually entirely at liberty, completely the master of my own destiny, as far as that is conventionally possible. I was simply trapped by my own knowledge of what was possible in my relationship with the Tiger of Tantra. So doje. what's in a name? Kun means all, but Kun might be better rendered as total. Zang means good, but good can be a prissy word in some respects and should not be thought of as the good that is the opposite of bad. Zung has more the sense of complete or whole, like tasting a good brandy. It is a whole fulfilling experience beyond which nothing else could be required. Good pertains to complete lack of doubt, the word Kunzang also relates to Kuntuzangpo, the personification of the primordial non dual state. Dorje means indestructible. Dorje also means diamond, adamantine, or thunderbolt. So Kunzang Doje could be translated as. Thunderbolt of total completeness. It could also mean the tiger who ate me from the inside out. That might not make sense to anyone, but it gives the sense of the lama who rearranged my conceptual mind with the violent virtuosity of consummate uncompromising skill. In some of the wisdom lays, you will find reference to yetis, zombies, and miracles. These are part of Tibetan culture and part of Vajrayana. There's no need to believe in these things in order to enjoy this book, because the lays don't depend on belief in such phenomena. They depend on their essential meaning. I don't advocate belief or disbelief with respect to anything that is not within anyone's personal realm of experience. Not being able to believe shouldn't be confused with active disbelief. You can remain agnostic. You can simply not know. They say that human beings have walked on the moon but I've no absolute proof of that. It's what my culture tells me. I have no reason to doubt it, but what evidence do I have? I have the same evidence that any Tibetan has as to whether zombies exist. I've never seen a zombie, but that doesn't mean I have to disbelieve in them doesn't mean I have to believe in them either. Now people don't tend to like that limbo, that intermediate state between certainty and uncertainty, but it's highly creative and open to endless possibilities. I feel that it is possible to enter the world of Vajrayana whilst remaining English or whatever nationality you happen to be. I believe that you can cross boundaries and live in the tidal margins between cultures. You can be a gay rodeo rider, a vegetarian firearms enthusiast, a priest who enjoys the sport of pugilism, a pacifist who enjoys war novels. Or a heavy metal guitarist who loves baroque chamber music. You can even be a hippie who speaks the Queen's English, enjoys Shakespeare plays and reads Jane Austen novels. Oh, that's me by the way. Welcome to my book.